I'm Tony Lockwood, founder of Thompson Wright Partners, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the latest episode of Inside Track, where I discuss business transformation journeys with leading figures in industry. Today, I'm joined by Michael Ryan, a finance transformation leader and author with over 20 years experience of delivering change. An Irishman, he has worked extensively in England, and I'm sure you'll agree brings an energy and directness to, the, to today's episode. Let me introduce you to him now. Hi, Michael. Great that you could join us today. Um, thank you very much for that. Um, You're welcome. Where, where do we find you today? Where do you find? I'm actually at home in my home in Dublin. In Dublin. I've been home for oh since February. Once the lockdown kicked in in Ireland, ahead of England, um, I've hardly left the house. Right. <laughs> and, and how are you finding that? Um, to be honest, I'm, I'm pretty okay with it. I mean, I've been doing the work of a transformation consultant since about 2000, uh, which basically involved traveling, staying in a hotel, for me, flying backwards and forwards from Dublin Airport. So I'm, I'm pretty resourceful. And yeah. uh, actually, neither of the two lockdowns, the major lockdowns, have particularly bothered me. Right. Uh, the first lockdown, I was away on assignment all of last year in Birmingham. So the first lockdown, I actually did my garden I painted my fence about 10 times. I took up gardening as a hobby, so I completely redesigned the garden. Um, so I'd say for about six weeks, I can't actually remember how long lockdown one lasted. I know in Ireland it started early. Um, I just immersed myself in the garden. Right. And that was it. When it came around to what's effectively what we're in lockdown two, um, Ireland again was a couple of weeks ahead. Uh, I don't know why, maybe it's a Catholic guilt trip thing. We thought the virus would go away if we started to behave ourselves a bit better. Um, so we've been in lockdown two weeks ahead of the UK. Uh, this time, though, it's been solid work. I've had client work since early part of the summer, and uh, I've been pretty busy. So I'm, I'm pretty okay with it, because for me, it means I'm not staying in a hotel. I can eat my own food. And <laughs> I'm not seeing Aerolingus stewardesses twice a week. <laughs> Great. And, and uh, you've got really quite an interesting background and, and uh, it'd be good to explore that as we go through the podcast. But do you just want to give a give the listeners just a brief overview? Um, yeah, um, I'm approaching a milestone. So today is the 17th of November. On Friday, the 20th of November, I will be 50. It will be approximately 25 years since I first rocked up in the UK and said, somebody please give me a job. I'm tired of being on the dole back home. And um, I did the, the typical things I think that all consultants have done. We started off as accountants, decided that accountancy was boring, uh, morphed into being project managers when none of us knew what it was because the apprentice wasn't on the telly yet. <laughs> and then around about 2005, Deloitte taught me what being a consultant was, which sounded great. Uh, and then I discovered that if you're a contracting consultant, you get paid more. So I've been doing that for the last 10 years. Uh, background wise, did I set out to be an accountant? No. Everybody sets out to be a professional footballer. I want to play football for Man United. Nobody in their right mind wants to be an accountant. <laughs> but two of my uncles are accountants. So when I finished uh, school here, they were like, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I was like, oh, I don't know. So one of the managers convinced me to go do an accountancy course. And uh, the rest is history, as you say. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and I, I noticed, obviously, over the last uh, good few years, you've been heavily involved in finance transformation. Yeah. So, so just uh, we ask, ask this question often on the podcast. How do you define transformation? Um, well, I've learned an awful lot over the years in terms of how to approach this. 
Um, uh, basically, transformation is leading, leaving something in a better state than, than you found it in. Um, that's what it is. Um, it's not easy. It's challenging. And I think, actually, you approach it in different ways at different phases of your career. So, for example, when I started out, one of the first big companies I worked for in the UK was Whitbread Beer Company. And it gave me an absolutely fantastic experience at the time, but I was too young to really appreciate what I was in the middle of. So I started out as an accountant within their logistics finance division. And Whitbread was a fantastic test case at the time for the number of systems it had in order to do absolutely anything. Fantastic company, great experience, great people, really loved it. And it was a brewing business, so it was absolutely fun. Great crack to work in. Yes. Um, but it had a professional projects group. It was called BPIT, Business Process and IT. And by sheer chance, I actually sat right next door to the group. And I kind of was always kind of morphing towards it. Uh, I wanted my boss to change my title to be finance project manager and then I could sit with them and have chats about how projects are done. Um, and they were actually very good. They were probably way ahead of their time. They quite easily dealt with Y2K at the time. You bear in mind, we're about a beer company, probably had about 20 different systems to accomplish anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and these guys taught me an awful lot. But one of the best things that got handed to me at the time was, uh, and I don't know if any of your listeners have ever come across this book, because I lent it to someone and I want it back. It's called The Project Manager's Secret Handbook. Right. I don't know if any of your guys who are listening to this have come across this. Anyone who has, please send it to me. Find <laughs> it, track me down and send it to me. I lent it to someone that I've never had a fact. Basically, at the time, project management was becoming um, a, a profession, should we say. And Whitbread had some very talented guys doing that. And there was a lad who used to sit beside me, Keith Smith, fantastic logistics project manager. And he gave me this book as a present for my 30th birthday, I think. And basically, the book is written like this. The first half of the book is written facing this way. And the second half of the book is upside down facing the other way. You get halfway through the book before you realize this. <laughs> but there's the great quote that's in it. And if it walks like a project, it talks like a project, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a duck. <laughs> <laughs> and there are an awful lot of people who think that they're project managers, who think that they have a project and who actually think that they're managing change. And they're not. They're very rigid in how they do things and they either take out a project plan. I mean, I, for one, although I'm a transformation leader, I have not looked at Microsoft projects since 2000. And if anyone put it in front of me, I would fling it out the door and say, oh, hey, don't be lying to me. <laughs> um, change is all about how you interact with people. Um, and at the moment, as I act as, a, as an independent consultant, I don't get my projects handed to me nicely by my boss. I have to go out and hunt for them. And generally, I find that the work comes in, and on day one, I get the truth out of the client. Mm -hmm. So I've heard the pitch normally from a recruitment agent, and I've heard the spiel in advance of what's going to happen, and I go in. And normally, it takes me on average four hours to get to the bottom of what the real project is, which bears no resemblance to what they got me to sign up to and say, I'll do this for X amount. <laughs> and I get in the door, and I go, oh, you're killing me. So how do you go about doing that? Uh, well, actually, I was challenged to, um, what's the word, write this up a couple of weeks ago. I popped it onto my LinkedIn profile. What I generally do on day one is I take out whoever is my most immediate project sponsor, which generally in my instance happens to be the CFO, and we go, all right, okay, let's just put it out all on the table. This is what you say you've asked for. Um, let's now go through a challenge session on that. And I do an awful lot of that because I juggle more than one client at a time. And I spend an awful lot of time getting to the bottom of what is really the true exam question. And I don't care how long that takes. 
we get to the bottom of what it is you really seriously truly need fixed before we actually start to do anything. Yeah. And generally what you find is people who aren't professional transformation consultants or project managers, they had a fixed idea of what the answer was, but the majority of them have never formulated properly what the question is. Yeah. So that's what we deal with first of all. What's the exam question? And, and, and that does two things, doesn't it? It, it, it gives you cl- um, ability to clarify that with the, with, with the sponsor. Yeah. Um, but then, you, then you're both singing on the same hymn sheet. But at the same time, it gives you the capability and opportunity to really understand some of the challenges yeah. and issues and, and what's what's going on. And, and I suppose the cultural aspects of the organisation mm-hmm. help uh, inform how you want to, uh, to to take the transformation of the programme forward. Yeah. And I, I mean, people ask you, how, how do I go about doing transformation? I get regularly asked um, which particular ERP systems I'm expert in or so on. I'm expert in none of them. Every single one of the projects I've done since I started out has involved an ERP system or some tech solution. I'm not an expert in any of them. What I deal with is the people and how they're organized and structured in order to actually deliver. The tech can sit there. The tech can work, as is amply demonstrated by our little (laughs) piece of kit we bought this morning. Um, It may work, it may not. Uh, The key to success in doing this all at the time is managing the people. Absolutely. And how the people behave and how they react to change varies from one to the other. And it obviously depends upon their own personal circumstances. So there's no one size fits all for an approach to changing large organizations. So, so those programs that you've been involved in, um, it'd be good just to, to explore some of the more challenging ones and, and, and what made them challenging and, and, and how you overcame, overcame that challenge. Um, I'd say the largest challenge associated with the projects since about um, 2002, 2003 is that they've all involved redundancies. Right. When you start out, there's a little bit of an evolution in, in this type of career. When you start out originally, you're doing projects to deliver change, which make the service better um, or the process better or so on and so forth, but introduce a new piece of kit. And they're all feel-good projects. There are no losers in these projects. We all get to look great. Mm-hmm. Um, the real projects when you actually graduate slightly is there's a cost to every project so there's a business case associated with the start of it or as I indeed was posting about the small feasibility study and invariably organisations can only fund change by making redundancies mm-hmm. once you introduce this element into it there are no winners there is no easy way to do this I've seen some companies do it absolutely brilliantly I've seen some other companies do it very very badly because they're afraid of it um, it's not an easy thing to do. And so the only thing... When you look at those two, two extremes then, the ones that are doing it really bad and the ones that are doing it really good, what are the core differences? Uh, the core difference straight away is open communication. Like, um, in my entire experience in every company, the staff aren't stupid. You know, everybody knows when there's a problem in a particular business. They know when something isn't working well. They know when the company has actually gone through a bad period of time, as many of them are at the moment. Um, And they know that something will happen because the companies aren't going to sit still, otherwise they're going to fail. When they try to do it by stealth, or they're not prepared to front up and lead it from the very top, then they tend to be tricky. Uh, They can be very challenging, difficult on both sides. Um, but from the very first time I've done this back in whatever it was, 2002 for Argos, uh, the only way to approach it is to be open. So you, you have to, a lot of people seem to think if we do it by stealth, we'll successfully manage it. 
but it does it doesn't work that way. People buy you in nature, they discover what's going on. They therefore they're not in tune with what your objective is, so they don't have to play ball with it. Um, so I think it's very important to be open, explain the rationale, um, and actually just work through the situation with the people because there's no harm in you helping staff you're making redundant find other jobs. Yeah, I I find that it's it's always best to be honest, and and yes, and and, and because if you're not, as you say, um, they'll find out, and if they don't find out the official route back through the official routes, they'll make it up, and nine yeah. times out of ten that'll be a lot worse. Yeah, and, and they'll start going down a particular path. But be open and honest with them. And, and, and when I've been involved in transformations where, where we've been open and honest, even when we don't have the answers, we're mm-hmm. open and honest enough to come back and say, we don't have the answer at this stage. We need yeah. your help to help us to find it. Mm-hmm. You get people on board and you get people engaged in mm-hmm. coming up. And and they and when they're engaged and they've, and they've been uh, involved in coming up with a solution, I'm not saying it's they, they accept it, more if it's if it's if, if it means that they are going to be made redundant yeah. but they understand it more and it helps them to accept it more and and, and allows them to go through that sort of change process yeah. a lot quicker yeah there's i mean there's a there's a change acceptance journey going on for every single person that that's impacted as a result of one of these programs and it's too easy to move to a default of it's a project plan, it's a time frame, it's either a 30-day or a 90-day consultation process, depending upon the size of it. And it's too easy to think in those terms. And you are, at the end of the day, affecting somebody else's life. That's what you're actually doing. Yeah. And in some instances, they will be accepting of that. Uh, in some instances, they will react against it. In some instances, they will openly oppose it. And you need to tailor your approach accordingly. But you have to remember at all times that what you're doing is you're delivering a fundamental shock to another person. Yeah. They have had certainty in their life with regards to doing something and that certainty is removed. In some instances, depending upon the time of life that they're at, the check cushions that and allows them to go do something else. And in many instances, people have had their life kick-started or restarted, if you like, at appropriate times to go on and do something else. Um, but you have to be wary of the fact that that's not going to work for everybody. And there are winners and losers in redundancy situations. And the challenge is always managing through that and its effect on the staff that remain behind, which is also very important to remember. Yeah, it's, it's always easy to, to ignore that and, 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 uh, and, and ignore the, the people that are left behind. Um, yeah. There's this, um, um, there's this sort of almost like guilt factor that comes in. It's like, well, you know, my, my really good friends that I've known for the last 20 years are are out on the streets, they're not there. What what that could have been me. So should, yeah. I, should I be celebrating the fact that it's not me or commiserating mm-hmm. that my mates are out on the street type stuff. And and, yeah. and a lot of organizations completely miss that uh, that that need to rebuild up that team yeah. once they've gone through some sort of transaction like that. That's one of the reasons why I encourage clients to think not in terms of project milestones, but in terms of waves of change. So if you have large-scale finance functions that could run to several hundred, you won't do the change that affects them all in one go. You will do the change that affects several teams, depending upon what your plans are for for what you're achieving. Um, And that a wave of change is you plan it, you implement it. There's always a period of time in which it's going on, but then you have to allow it to relax the other side. Okay, so it needs to, everybody just needs to feel like that stopped. Okay, we've moved on. We're not going to immediately hit you over the head with the second wave. 
which is the difference really between planning change and managing a project plan. Yeah, well, it's interesting. You can't. You've touched that a couple of times now, but um, you know, yeah, you, you haven't. You've not seen a Microsoft project plan since what was it, two thousand two, whatever. So, so, um, what do you think? Uh, How do I do it? Well, what's what, more about what are, what are the vital steps that you put in place um, in terms of that transformation framework? Yeah, well, I, I tell everybody that if you can't run a project on a plan, or if you can't run a project on a page, you, yeah. you can't run a project. Um, so it's it's very important in the opening weeks in which you're involved um, with a new client to have in your own head where is your going and the major steps to get there. And it doesn't matter whether it's just something you keep in your own back pocket. But basically, when you're in charge of leading change, you stand up and you can see where the goal is. And everybody else who's playing the same game as you generally is down here. They're looking down, their heads down, they're looking at their feet, they're waiting on the ball to be passed to them. They're not always looking up and can see the end result. Your job is to stand at the back, see exactly where this is going, and make sure everybody else comes along with it. You don't need a detailed 300-step plan to accomplish that. No, but it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, it's a plan on a page. Everyone has a different understanding of what a plan on a page is. Uh, yeah. I remember one uh, probably about six, seven years ago. Um, the sponsor at the time was keen to get everybody to work on a plan on a page. Yeah. Um, and um, um, there was within this, within the organization I was working in, there was three or four major programs um, that, that was being simultaneously managed mm-hmm. quite independently but uh, uh, they only ever came together at the, at the, at the sort of group md level yeah uh, and she was very keen to get a plan on the page for each one of them. um so we did ours which was mm-hmm. probably about 15 lines mm-hmm. on a powerpoint yeah deck, um one, one one page um and and the on the one of the others on the other extreme basically cut and paste a, power, a, a, a Microsoft p- a project plan. Yeah. A, a probably um, font size half mm-hmm. of page. So, you, you know, you need a, you need a sort of a, a microscope to read it type stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's interesting. P- different people have different perceptions of what a plan on a page is. What, what, a plan what, on what a page. What does yours need to have? It's, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's the easily digestible picture of what we're doing, where we're going, and how we're getting there. Yeah. And, and if somebody cut out to me the detailed part of a plan and put it on the page, I'd fling it back at them and tell them to go do it again. Yeah. Um, it, the, the largest skills associated with doing this are you know what the problem is you're solving. You articulate that to every single person in the organization from the CEO right down to the bottom clerk. You do that in a digestible form for them. And it's your job to ensure that they all move in the direction you want them to go in. And the key skill to doing this is being able to put in perspective to them, to be able to communicate effectively to them what the problem is, what we're doing, what your contribution means to this, and then inspire them and G them up that they want to achieve it. So the whole, it's far more important to have communicable communicable, uh, wrong word probably, uh, high-level plans that everybody can absorb and everybody knows what way we're going. And we have large detailed plans and only several people understand what way we're going and it takes them three days to give us something. Yeah, 
I was talking to someone a few weeks ago and, and, and they came back with a, what I thought was a really good analogy. Um, they, they, they describe a final page almost like when, when you're in the car and you put and you go into a sat nav and you say, yeah. I want to get to this destination. You absolutely clear the destination you want to get to. So that's clear mm. and that's in yeah. there. And then it comes up usually with a page to say you've got three routes. Mm-hmm. And that's your plan on the page because you, you, it shows you at very high level what the route is yeah. and, and very clear about your destination. But then once you've, once you've said, yeah, I'm going to go with that, 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 that route, that's it. It just delivers mm-hmm. you back into these are the activities that you've got to do on an ongoing basis. But it's yes. that plan of the page is that first screen that says, you're here, you want to get to there, this mm-hmm. is the best route to take. Yes. And that's, I mean, one of the jobs you have in doing this type of role is there's a main line, a main line of attack for what's being done. Yeah. Your job is to clearly see where the end goal is and not everybody else is going to keep up with how that um, journey is, is going. It's your job to make sure it still stays on track. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that's, and that comes back to what we were saying earlier, isn't it, about as you're going through transformation, it's not, it's not a straight line. There's going no. to you go up and moving all over the place. There's yeah. going to be stuff that that happens halfway through that you had no idea that would would ever. COVID. Mm. Uh, how many projects kicked off in in, in September? Thinking actually, uh, mm. uh, we're, we're, once we get through the election and and once we get through Christmas, it'll be mm. our systems going. Then February comes, March comes, and the whole world changes. Yeah, yeah. Those th- but you've got to be able to adapt and you've got to be able to understand very quickly how you're going to adapt to ensure that actually your destination is still the place that you want to get to. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the skill is your capacity to manage something. You regularly see people do breakfast briefings, that type of thing, with regards to whether you need to be a subject matter expert in a particular area. So to run a shared service centre, do you need to be a shared services expert? No, you don't. You need to be able to manage people. You need to be able to manage, manage them towards an end goal. That's, that's the idea. Totally agree. Totally agree. So, so in terms of your, the way that you structure your team, um, do, you, do you have a typical structure? Do you have sort of uh, you know, your lieutenants? And, you know, how, do you, do, do, how do you do that? What, what, what's, the, what's your standard approach? Um, well, one of the most important things for me is that we're capable of reporting and communicating what we're doing. Uh, the the eager beaver where there's an awful lot of work going on, but we can't actually reflect that back to the upper echelons. That to me is useless. Mm-hmm. Uh, for starters, the staff get no recognition for what they're doing. They're just working really, really hard, but there's no there's no output to it. So the very first thing I set up is a reporting structure, mm-hmm. and I identify what the key metrics are that I want to know. I, I don't want people coming to me telling me we worked 12, 14 hours of the day. We worked really, really hard. And I go, well, that's absolutely bleeding brilliant. Well done. Do you mind actually putting me in perspective what you actually achieved? Yeah. And an awful lot of teams, particularly an awful lot of static operational finance teams who've not been transformed in a long time, have no concept of how to put across how it is they're actually making progress, what they're actually delivering. And so when a transformation project comes along and it benchmarks their performance, they go, well, when they realize just how bad they were. Um, so that reporting mechanism is absolutely important. So you start off with, What's the exam question? What's the reason we're here to do? You make sure everybody's clear on what it is. In your own head, you have your plan on a page. You're constantly near, constantly to the point of annoying them, communicating and talking to the staff. You walk the floor all of the time. Do not attempt to lead transformation sitting in an office. You need to get out and see how people are reacting to things Um, and encourage them and let them see the human face of change. You're the one driving it. 
So march up and down the office, talk to them, see them, let them see that you're you're there. Um, yeah. And, and and how do you um, how do you handle difficult stakeholders? Difficult stakeholders are a challenge, no matter what company you're in. And I've never ever done a project yet that didn't have a difficult stakeholder. And you're deluding yourself if you think you can change somebody. Um, I, I've learned in the last few years where I've done some extra training for myself. And I can't make you do something. I'd be deluded into thinking I could make you do something. Yeah. Um, I can coerce you into doing something. I can create an environment in which you have no choice but to do something. Or you're going to resent us for it. Yeah. Um, and and there's, there's no way around that. So you need to understand you're going in to do a project for a particular period of time. And there are people who are not going to want done what you're doing. They are not going to cooperate with you. And you still need to step back look at the end goal and keep the thing moving along. You're not going to finish a transformation project with a whole lot more new friends than you started it. Absolutely. But, it, but in terms of those, those difficult, challenging stakeholders, yeah. do, do, you, do you bypass them? Do you... Um... There's, 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 two ways, there's two ways that I approach it. So the first is um, you gather the facts. Yeah. Um, and you present them in some format, which gives some objective viewpoint uh, around the issue. Because there's always some issue you're debating. Yeah. The issue is performance or somebody's contribution towards the overall process. And you need to put that in perspective and score it properly. And a lot of businesses just don't have mechanisms for do that. So you have to make them up yourself in Excel and then produce them and then get through the part where the other guy goes, well, actually, I don't believe that. And you establish some degree of credibility around what you've produced. So it becomes a standard, uh, but you always need a tiebreaker. So every every organization requires a decision tree for a reason. There is one person who runs an organization the whole way down yeah. for a reason. You are always going to encounter individuals who are not going to want to do what you want them to do. Uh, you got to present the facts, present them up as impartially as possible, and someone else needs to make a decision. Um, now I've got no issue making decisions that are within the control and responsibility of my particular role um, but what I find in a lot of instances particularly in major transformation programs is <clears throat> people avoid making decisions yes. and you have to bring it up and you may take a lot longer to get a major decision because you've got to present the case, you've got to prove that the facts you've assembled are um, correct you probably might have the same debate three or four times over before you get something to move in the direction you want. Yeah, I find I find a lot that that that's a cultural issue. Um, so it's not just yeah. in the transformation uh, area that uh, people don't make decisions. I think uh, a lot of organisations don't have that clarity and that that approach of, as you say confronting issues and making clear decisions this they try to fudge it or they try to ignore it or push it yes. under the carpet yes. and when, uh, which which is the date that that's the sort of the way that they operate normally and when you're then mm -hmm. putting in a transformation with a very clear uh, end point and a very clear budget and a very clear time scale yeah. that sort of bumps up against that culture uh, and i think that's what i find that that can drive out some issues and, 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 some, and some challenging stakeholders that you've got to overcome. Yeah. you got to bear in mind as well, like most people have settled into the jobs that are doing for 10, 15 years or longer. Yeah, yeah. They get promoted to the position from which they're actually not suited to making decisions. 
Absolutely. And then the company send them on corporate training programs in order to bring them up to speed. But if you actually put them up against their external numbers, they don't measure up. Yeah. Um, and so they're not suited to making hard decisions. They like to just beaver away within the subject matter that they believe that they are competent in. Absolutely. So, um, so transformation, well, business generally, but transformation in, in, in particular is quite stressful for lots of people. We, we touched yeah. on it earlier. If you mm -hmm. are the recipient of change and, and it's not a, a great um, uh, a, a great outcome that you're expecting, it can be quite stressful. And that can be quite stressful for the people that are leading it. So what do you do to uh, alleviate that stress? Um, when I was younger, it was always sport. So I'd either run, play football, or go to the gym. Um, as I've got older and I... <laughs> the clock ticks down to me hitting 50. <laughs> I've had to change how I get away from this. So um, I tried a couple of different things. I, I wrote, uh, about 18 months ago, I wrote a book. Right. And part of that book was, or the book was aimed at how to restart your life or reboot your life. And a lot of the lessons within it, um, they apply to everybody, whether you're middle-aged or not, when you want to restart something. And one of the things I took up was Qigong. So Qigong is, is not a martial art, as a lot of people seem to think it is. It's not an exercise either. Um, it's to encourage you to meditate. Right. Do very slow, gentle, deliberate movements. And a lot of my friends laugh at this because I say two hours of Qigong is harder than two hours in the gym. And they all look at me and go, I don't believe it. <laughs> I go, no, it is. Um, because what, what it does is it's it's I think the percentages are we use seven percent of our conscious mind for what we do, and then there's ninety-three percent of it dedicated to unconscious thought that anything whatsoever could be running around in your head. Um, and what Qigong does is it taps into that. Um, and a lot of people can look at that and go, oh, that's they look at me and they go, well, one, there's no way he's telling us the truth. He doesn't do that. Yes. And there's no way that he gets the success out of it that he's telling us he does. But I do. Because what it does is it allows you to completely still the mind. And what you will find is whatever project problem or challenge you have, the answers will pop up yeah. while you're doing this. And that's, that's what I do. I originally took it on about uh, three years ago to lower my blood pressure. Um, the project, as you know, can be challenging enough. Yeah. Uh, it worked so successfully, I kept doing it. It's brilliant. I do it about once a week. In fact, I miss it when I can't do it. Right. Uh, I think it's interesting. That I, I know a number of people that, that sort of follow a similar regime and, uh, uh, and it is, it's, it's important, um, as you say, just to clear your mind, to give that, to, to give your mind an opportunity to, to refresh. Yeah. Um, and like you say, if you can clear that from all the other stuff that's going on, some put as you say, some people do meditation, some people go running, some people go walking, some people yeah. go cycling. And it is just that ability just to clear your mind and ideas start to flow then, don't they? Yeah. And the, the very interesting thing is this is very easy to do at home at the moment. Um, but you try doing this at a client site. <laughs> Look at where's the Irishman guy? He's lying down over there. What's he doing? I've no idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's interesting though, I remember uh, I got involved in the launch of Egg uh, many, many okay. years ago yeah. at the Internet Bank and um, um, we were we one of the key things that we were trying to do was to get the, the call handlers in the best possible frame, uh, frame of mind when mm -hmm. they take the next call yeah. So, unlike a lot of call centre operations where it was all about a matter at the time it was a matter of let's get the call completed and get on to the next one and yeah. that was what you were measured about. Um, 
egg changed it around to say, if you've had a really, really bad call experience or whatever, mm-hmm. the last thing we want you to do is put that call down and pick up the, pick up the next customer because yeah. you're always going to reflect your previous mm-hmm. call on that. Mm-hmm. So we created these chill-out zones. Uh, mm-hmm. And at any point, uh, uh, the, the uh, individual call handlers could just go away. If they'd had a particularly bad call, to go away and get into this room with comfy, comfy sort of cushions on the floor, mm. bit, bit wacky colouring and everything, and, yeah. and and just lie down. So you would have it would have been perfect, an egg. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Got a place um, to go to. <laughs> I, I find um, so I spent an awful lot of years as a sports coach. I either coached athletics or I coached football, and I bring a lot of energy to the project teams and indeed the client operational teams that I deal with. Yeah. I actually can't stand sitting at a desk for eight hours and I might spend up to 12 hours on a client site in a day. Yeah. Um, so I encourage them to get up, get out, go for a walk, do whatever they like. Um, I believe that it's important to balance getting some exercise, getting some headspace, but actually doing some work. Yeah. And I had some very interesting debates over the last few years with regards to the remote working and now we've gone from a situation where that was optional for people to the fact that for half the country, it's, you know, you're at home. And there's an awful lot of challenges that, that go with that. But for me, when you think of a transformation program, we can do, and I have done during the course of the summer, three feasibility studies for clients. We can plan how to do this. And we can pull off doing some elements of the change. But when a company is in trouble and it's struggling, it's like a football team that's struggling. And you can't play a match with six of them sat at home and five of them in the office. It's very important that you build a sense of team spirit and that everybody faces the same challenge together. And so to do major transformational change during this period of time is something that very, 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 very few companies will actually manage. They may give a nod to it and claim that they're doing it, but uh, it's, it's, it's very difficult to have that and embedded. Yeah, I... Absolutely, like you say, it is so critical that you get everybody going on that journey and taking responsibility and driving it forward. And, and, and it becomes a lot more challenging when they're, they're not co-located, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, the other thing I've learned as I've gotten older is it's okay for me to admit when I make a mistake. So <laughs> when you asked me one of the earlier questions, Tony, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> and I've learned the older I get, it's kind of like okay to go, well, occasionally you can make a mistake. <laughs> but, but actually, you know, it, the, the old adage that actually it's your mistakes that create the lessons. If you get everything right, then you don't develop, do you? So, um, but the, the question you had was actually, it, it had an interesting answer, but I ever got to the end of it. <laughs> which was how I assembled the team. Oh, yes, yeah, cool. Um, uh, apart from the report, all the, all the structural stuff necessary to do a project, what I go looking for is, is the talented people. Yeah. The people who actually have some imagination to them, um, have some get up and go, who are actually restricted by the structure. And one of the things that I did last year when I inherited the shared service center with an inordinate number of management layers was I established a management academy I had an awful lot of young staff. So I had a lot of people who claimed to be team leader, supervisor, manager, Uber manager, next manager, so on and so forth. And I said, I have a team, senior team of five people. So the rest of you aren't in this. So you need to be in something else. Um, so I held a meeting and I said, look, we're establishing a management academy. Every single one of you is that claims to manage somebody, you, it, there's the academy. But what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. 
as as we established it, it's a body. You do what you like with it. I leave the room. And uh, I never attended the meetings. I didn't give them an agenda. Um, I didn't appoint anybody to lead it. In fact, one or two of my managers who went to it were yanked out of the room and told not to go to it again. (laughs) They're supposed to be managers. (laughs) Um, And what I got out of it was the very, very best of the bright, of the possibly the youngest and brightest of them seized the opportunity to, in almost an animal farm world, to establish themselves as the top dog. Because there was no, there was no, um, organizational structure yeah we just created this body and go what do you want to make of it and they came back with two i was actually stunned they came back with two uh cost saving initiatives to the benefit of their own teams plus uh obviously the business itself um and it generated one or two natural born leaders i don't subscribe to this nonsense that you make leaders leaders are born and it was one or two of them in there and whether they were 25 26 or 27 made no difference they shone, they came up, and as soon as I saw what they could do, they ended up with new roles. Um, and they just seized an opportunity in a completely unstructured, unstructured environment to show what they could do. And the cream always rises to the top. I didn't have to do anything. It was possibly the best bonus I had in the entire project. <laughs> I just read the rewards. It was great. <laughs> that almost brings you around to full circle, really, because at the start, you, start you, you, you referred to The Apprentice. And... Uh, and that, although I would never use The Apprentice as an example of anything good in terms of managing projects, but to yeah. some extent, they do that type of thing on an ongoing basis, don't they? They throw groups of people together and, and, yeah. and, and, and the natural leaders rise to the top, ultimately. And, yeah, and they, they, they do, and it's interesting. I'd probably say the first, the first two or three series of The Apprentice probably still hit the mark. Yeah. But for anyone who was a professional project manager looking at it and then someone watching it and going, yeah, I can be a project manager. I go, oh, no, you can't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, I, 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 would, I would encourage everybody, though, you know, the, the, I don't think the UK apprentice ever hit the mark. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we had some friends who were living over in the States uh, when it first came out on the American networks when Trump um, was the uh, was was the apprentice of uh, uh, ran the apprentice show, and the yeah. first series uh, they sent a they sent a copy across to us, um, and the people on there were just exceptional. Mm. They, they, uh, the, the 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 girl who um, created Spanx, you know the the underwear, she yeah. um, and the, and and they were exceptional business people. Mm. And and you could, I think, a lot of people could learn a lot from watching that series. Forget all right. the tasks that Trump brought, but you know the yeah. individuals and the way that, hand, that they handled themselves. They these were business people that were going into this apprentice room as opposed to uh, wannabe wannabe um, social media celebrity stars. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway. Um, Enough of that. Um, if you could sort of uh, boil all of your experience down into one takeaway, what would that be? I would say that a lot of the people who are in the career that I'm in never had a career plan. They never had an end objective because the um, discipline of project management and transformation management is new. Mm-hmm. As a discipline, the apprentice as a spin-off proves that, Okay. Um, so nobody knew what they wanted as an end result. Many of them, like myself, came into it from a, a particular discipline. So we ended up in finance transformation because we were accountants. 
Um, but I encourage, I, I experience an awful lot of people who've gone through my career route, they've no end goal. They don't know what they want to be. Mm-hmm. And it's actually quite surprising because the, the level of talent within some of the transformation leaders and people who progress to run and shared service centers is enormous. But they have put a glass ceiling on their career. And, and I, don't, I don't look at it like that at all. I go, I have a colossal number of skills for dealing with different situations. Um, and what do I want to do? Well, I eventually want to run the business. I don't want to be the person who's sent in to transform it. I want the business to run properly from the very start and live and breathe transformation. Um, that's what I want. I don't, I, don't, I don't see my career being limited to the point where I run out of steam and energy delivering change programs. And you can stick that on my tombstone, realize. It's a change manager who ran out of, ran out of energy. Um, now, you, sh- you should always have an end goal in mind. And if you don't have one at the moment, sit back and come up with one. Otherwise, you're just killing yourself for no good reason. Yeah, totally agree. And, and I think you know, those people that are the cream, uh, that have got that ability to transform and take people on the journey, will naturally be leading the organisations in due course because that's a core skill that any chief exec, any C-suite member of the team needs to have. Um, probably more than the, um, the core uh, technical ability of any function. That It's that ability to take a team and to lead a team and to drive the transformation. Those are the core skill sets that anybody needs to have if they want to as you say, run organizations in the future. Yeah, exactly. And, and find, find, find something. I'm actually sorry that I, I was very lucky in the first two jobs I had in the UK. When I worked for Whitbread Beer Company and I worked for Argos, I worked for two great companies. Mm-hmm. I was actually very lucky for 10 years. And it's only when you look back on it, you see, wow, oh, Jesus, that was brilliant. Yeah. Um, work for a company you want to work for. Yeah. Or when you find one, and you're doing a project for it, and you you um, its values works for you, or whatever it does works for you. Ask them for a job. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Michael. That was really great, and thanks uh, for having your insights. Uh, we we occasionally get questions from listeners, so if uh, if I collate them, are you happy to uh, to answer them? Yes, I'm happy to sell my book to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and what was that book? It was called Hit Your Reset Button, Reboot Your Life. Well, thanks a lot, Michael. That's really good. You're welcome. I'm always fascinated by how people get into the world of transformation, and Michael's experience is not uncommon. This podcast series couldn't be made without the willingness of people like Michael to give up their time and be prepared to share their experience. Feedback on the series has been great to date, and it means a great deal to all of us to hear what you think. It also means a lot to read comments that people have left on social media about something that they may have heard on a previous episode. Please do share your thoughts and remember to subscribe to the podcast within your podcast app. You'll then get notified when the next episode is released. You can also follow us on the Transformation Leaders Hub YouTube channel where all episodes will be available very soon. Once again, thank you to Michael and thank you for listening. See you in a couple of weeks.